0: Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC Podcasts are supported by advertising.
1: Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shopping-Gutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara Sagt Was und ich sage euch – Ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Clark alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30-Euro-Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code tarasagclark.
2: We lost, our humanity. We lost our dignity. We got punished for something we did not do.
3: Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. Our young lives were flipped upside down. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
4: Hello and welcome to the World Business Report podcast from the BBC World Service. Namaste, I'm Devina Gupta. And on this edition, we're talking about an Alabama hospital putting fertility treatment on hold after a controversial
3: court ruling people need to know that this is affecting couples, real-life couples who are trying to start families, who are just trying to live the quote-unquote American dream.
4: So what does this mean for Alabama's fertility industry? We find out in a bit. We also head to Turkey, Niger, and Japan to talk about their economies and how social media experience has changed for netizens in the European Union. But first... All the markets around the globe today have seen a big rally right now. American markets have opened. Dow Jones and S&P 500 both are in green. S&P 500 rallying by about 1.5% as I speak with you. And there is a theme. That is behind this global stock market rally from Japan to Hong Kong to Europe and now in the U.S., Emma Wall, who is head of investment analysis and research at Hargreaves Lansdowne, is with me to talk about it. So, Emma, it's all to do with this American semiconductor and chips company called NVIDIA. Tell us more.
0: Well, we live in extremely strange times when the fortune of one stock can impact global stock markets. But that is where we appear to be today. So, Nvidia is the stock that has rallied more than four hundred percent since the beginning of last year. So, you know, just fourteen months up um, five times, and it makes the chips that power AI. And it is its results throughout this week, which is what's caused it to, to rally so much mm. today and has caused that confidence
4: in the US, in Japan and, and across the world. So investor confidence impacting uh, markets around the world, but booming markets don't really mean booming economies, isn't it? For example, there's been a key manufacturing data out today in the European Union showing that uh, it is still way above uh, getting into revival limit right now. So it's not into a revival mode right now. Manufacturing is still down here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is also not the first piece of negative macro data we've had out of Europe year to date. So France and Germany have reported negative data. France economy shrank in the third quarter of 2023. German industrial production has been weak partly because of high energy prices and German house prices have also fallen sharply. But markets are forward-looking, and European equities have done well this year, Mm. in part because inflation is falling back towards target. And so they're forecasting markets optimistically better times, better economic times, more consumer confidence, more consumer spending – and therefore more money in markets.
4: Emma, be with me, because I want to look at one of Asia's largest economies, Japan, where today uh, the main index, Nikkei 225, 225, was in a 1989 party mode, literally, because uh, some of the biggest Japanese companies passed their all-time high on this index that was last seen three decades ago in 1989. I caught up with Seijo Takesheda, who is professor of management at the University of Shizuka in Japan. And he's been explaining to me what Emma hinted at, whether booming markets could mean booming economies and booming consumer confidence.
5: Well, you know, 1989 was what people called the bubble. Uh, People were buying into stocks because the money was flowing and they were buying into companies which cannot justify their earnings capability. Uh, it's called price earnings ratio, uh, which was around sixty to seventy times. It's currently only fifteen, meaning that the current level of Nikkei is based on a fair value, fair growth level. And also, if you look at from the price to book, which is determination of the value of the company, it's also well very, I say, modest. In fact, it's lower than that of the United States or other major markets. So it's quite different from the bubble days in the sense that there is far more justification to the current level in the Japanese market than back in 1989.
4: How are then investors seeing this? Do you see small retail investors trying to invest more in uh, the stock market in Nikkei or is it investors from abroad who are coming and bringing this money?
5: It's definitely the latter. The foreigners were the ones that basically kicks off Japan. Uh, the individuals still have most of their assets held in bank accounts. This is one of the characteristics of the Japanese conservativeness. They really aren't investing. But looking, you know, at this market, many individuals are starting to well, consider about moving some of their, you know, deposits or you know, savings into investments. But um, considering the conservativeness of the nature of the Japanese, extremely risk avoidant, I would say that um, they're looking at this market level with a lot of admiration, mm-hmm. but uh, certainly not, you know, being able to jump in as they should.
4: Could some of that money be coming from China because China is facing a slowdown, so investors want to park their money in Japan.
5: That's a good point. I think there's been a lot of diversification of money away from China into Japan and also other, you know, uh countries like Vietnam or Myanmar or wherever uh the the the, the production, for example, is um walking away from China uh as a part of war of hegemony between the United States and and, and, and China. So, you know, for example, you're seeing a vast change in supply chain. To basically avoid having excessive inclination to the Chinese, so you know of course Japan would be one of the countries that would benefit from these mm. kind of trend overall
4: well, one of the contradictions lies in the economy because I remember just last week we were talking about how Japan is facing what many would call a technical mm. recession there 's been two quarters mm-hmm. of contraction. Mm-hmm of growth. Mm. And Mm. now we get a news of a booming market. Could you explain that to us?
5: Well, if you look at the corporate earnings side, uh, we're showing a record high profit continuously, also pushed very much by this vast weakening of the yen, which weakened from approximately 130 to 150 currently, so uh, to a dollar. So you're seeing a lot of breathing room for the Japanese exporters, who are obviously the leading edge of Japanese corporations. And this is, you know, the reason why we're seeing, you know, buoyant market. But overall, as you just noted, private consumption, for example, isn't that strong, partly because we're not seeing a wage rise in the past 20 years in spite of this, you know, Mm -hmm. wonderful performance by the corporations. And also we've been um, having 20 years of deflation. So, you know, that's another reason why we're not seeing buoyant levels of GDP.
4: That was Sejo Takeshita, Professor of Management at the University of Shizuka in Japan. Am I still with us? And of course, the billion dollar question is whether this rally would sustain or not. We'll talk more about stock markets in a bit. But first, now let's get into the big news of the day where in vitro fertilization or IVS has been, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, has seen a bit of a row in Alabama in the U.S., now, IVF is a fertility treatment where eggs are fertilized in a laboratory. These embryos are frozen, and till the time they can be implanted in a woman's womb, which could take weeks, months, or even years, they have to be preserved very carefully in liquid nitrogen units. In the U.S. now, Alabama's top court has ruled that these frozen embryos could be legally classified as children. And the court ruled last week that any human life from the moment of conception, was sacred. Now, there are various implications for this. First, the National Infertility Association in the U.S. has said the ruling would make it impossible for IVF to be offered in the States. So the business of fertility clinics is directly impacted, but also for parents who are expecting their children this is a very tough moment. Gabby Gordel has been receiving IVF treatment in Alabama after
3: three miscarriages. And this is what she told us. People need to know that this is affecting couples, real life couples who are trying to start families, who are just trying to live the quote unquote American dream. And you're stopping us from having a child. We're not trying to hurt embryos. I don't want to go into a clinic and destroy everybody's possibilities. I just want my right to have a child to be protected. They view protecting embryos as important, but what about our chance of having a family? Shouldn't that be protected as well?
4: That was Gabby Coitel, one of the parents who's receiving IVF treatment in Alabama. So, what exactly has happened and how? Does it impact the business of IVF clinics in the state? Brett Davenport is medical director at Fertility Institute of North Alabama is joining us now. So, uh, Brett, uh, tell us what changes for businesses like yours?
6: Well, you know, the, for t- the in vitro fertilization process itself is not going to be um, grossly affected in terms of can we do it or can we not do it? So that is not so much the question Hmm. of Of can we continue the question is going to be how do we go about doing it, and then what do we do with these cryopreserved embryos once once we have them, and that certainly will affect the decision process before we even get the cryopreserved embryos as to how many will you have and and um how how you know how many do you plan on using, and then what what are we going to do with them afterwards?
4: Mm. So basically, testing of embryos and the usage of embryos, that process comes under more legal scrutiny. But it's not a cheap process, is it, even for families who are opting for it now?
6: It's not a cheap process, and it's going to be a trickle-down effect um, if if such a ruling were to stand. And and I'm just going to say briefly that I've got high hopes that this is a big misunderstanding. Um, with a judge interpreting a law that was never intended to have these consequences. So I, I do have a lot of faith that the Alabama legislature is going to turn mm-hmm. this around and it's going to be OK. But if in the event that they did not, then we um, we're basically have some choices here. So um, how
4: much would it cost then? Like, for example, if a family wants to go for it now, does it impact the cost of it? Because now you'll have to perhaps look for other states to store these embryos where there are more yeah. liberal laws
6: well i mean so that is an option um a potential option that is is to transport the embryos to a different state for for storage and at that point you know it it, it's it's legal to do what they they wish with these embryos um and yes that does add a cost for transport um but there's other things to consider as well that would increase costs um so Right now, the process is we we retrieve all the eggs that we possibly can and we fertilize all of these eggs and we get as many embryos as will be produced. as can be produced. Mm. And and that's the most cost efficient way to go about this. And then we use whatever is going to be used over half or more of those embryos. Those are aneuploid and they're not they don't even have a chance at live birth.
4: Right. Um, But I mean, as it is, it is a very less sort of percentage uh, of success rate that one sees from this method. But do you see that some IVF clinics could be shutting shop with more legal difficulties? um,
6: Shutting shop is is an extreme statement. But I will tell you, um, you might see some move out of state because calls to do increase so much. um, And that would just be a personal decision. I'm not saying we wouldn't be able to continue, but um, it is possible that malpractice insurance could could see a rise just because of the trickle-down risk effects.
4: Brett Davenport, we leave it there. Medical Director at Fertility Institute of North Alabama joining us. As it is, U.S. state's largest hospital, the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System, has paused its in vitro fertilization services for now. You're with World Business Report
7: from the BBC World Service. In a world that doesn't pause, catching up isn't enough. The Financial Times keeps you one step ahead in your life and career. With breaking news, detailed analysis, and a deep understanding of the global economy. Don't just keep pace. Set the pace. Fearlessly Pink. The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com
1: slash fearless. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30-Euro-Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code TarasakClark. When you see Iran
7: close up, you realise just how complex a political landscape it is. The Global Story.
0: Smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big
2: news story. It seems that Iran's strategy at the moment is to increase the tension in the Middle East.
7: Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. When Israel does agree to a ceasefire in Gaza, Iran will then worry about Israel then turning its sights towards Iran again.
4: The Global Story. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now to the big test for Turkey's new central bank governor, Fatih Karana. He has decided to halt the cycle of big rate increases and keep the key interest rate at 45%. And that's because the inflation there is also in double digits and it's reached almost 65%. Our reporter Victoria Craig is joining us from Turkey. Uh, Victoria, first, we always talk numbers, but tell us the reality behind these numbers. What does inflation at 65% and interest rate at 45% mean?
8: Yeah, well, I mean, in very basic terms, it just means that life is really expensive because high inflation is one thing to deal with, which is something that people in this country have gotten very used to dealing with over the last Many years, decades, um, but now we have the added pressure of higher interest rates, which makes borrowing money more expensive. And a lot of people had resorted to taking on new credit cards or loans just to try to, you know, make ends meet, be able to afford grocery bills, things like that. Um, now that's harder because it's more expensive in the long run. That will make this the economic situation better because the whole idea of having higher interest rates is to try to cool demand in an economy. And that is something that Turkey's starting to see. But for now, things are really difficult. And just to give you some anecdotal evidence of that, you know, I was at the grocery store just the other day buying some meat. Five hundred grams, half a pound of minced or ground beef cost about ten dollars. And that's not, you know, the primo offering grass fed organic beef. It's just the run of the mill thing that you can mm. pick off of the grocery store shelf. So life It's very expensive here for people.
4: And what's the reason behind this then? I mean, is it the supply side that you're seeing, including some of the food items, or is it more demand?
8: Well, in, in short, it's years of unorthodox economic policy that's got us into this situation. So President Erdogan has in years past pressured central bank governors not to raise interest rates to try to combat rising inflation. And that's a tool that we've seen deployed in many countries around the world. So we've gotten ourselves now into a sort of inflation spiral, which means that people are constantly expecting prices to rise. And so they spend the money they have rather than saving it. And now we have this added pressure, we have the central bank doing what they need to do do raising rates but we also have fiscal policies in place that work against the central bank so the the government has increased minimum wage by 49% this year so that only puts more money mm. in people's pockets for them to be able to spend
4: victoria craig thanks for joining us i hope you keep enjoying the meat and cooking there <laughs> Thank thanks you. for joining us and keeping up with the inflation check and interest rate check in turkey now to a west african state which we haven't talked about in a while on this program Niger saw a military coup in July last year, after which it was heavily sanctioned. And since the takeover, the country has missed several big debt or bond repayments, which have totaled to about half a billion dollars. We are going to talk about that in a moment. But first, uh, just let's look back to September of last year, where our reporter Maini Jones drove across Niger.
5: So we're now 11 hours into a 15-hour journey from the southern city of Zindia, near the border of Nigeria, to the capital, Niamey. We've driven past oil fields, uranium deposits, mines, all of this is part of the wealth of this country, which, uh, despite having so many natural resources, still remains one of the poorest in the world.
4: That's BBC's Miami Jones. And this drive through Niger gives you an idea of the financial difficulties the country is facing. So back to those missed debt repayments. What are they? How big are they in the big scheme of things? And how much does it matter? I've been asking Leonard Bulanzare, a political economist based in Cape Town in South Africa.
2: Niger has missed 519 million in bond payments as of, uh, 19 February, and that's equivalent to about 2.9% of his GDP. And, um, this is a very, very, um, difficult situation for the country because at present, they are under a multitude of sanctions. Um, As you're aware, Niger had a military coup in July um, 2023, and the West African Regional Bloc, that is ECOWAS, placed them under sanctions, and also the um, West African Economic and Monetary Union, which Niger belongs to, also placed them under sanctions. So Niger has not been able to carry out cross-border trade activities, as well as cross-border financial transactions. So this has prevented them from being able to pursue these bond payments. And as a result, they can't carry out budget transactions. Um, they won't be able to carry out um, government projects. And above all, it's just going to create a very deleterious situation for the economy, which is already very poor.
4: Tell us about Niger's economy, especially after the sanctions, which were imposed when the military coup happened in the country just last year.
2: Well, Niger is a landlocked country based in the part of West Africa known as the Sahel. It's an arid uh, part of the region which stretches from Guinea to Somalia. And as I noted, it is a landlocked country. Um, The United Nations Human Development Index has ranked Uh, Niger, 189th out of 191 countries in terms of its development index, so it is a very poor country, and its largest export is uranium, is the seventh largest producer of uranium in the world, and it is a small-scale oil exporter, but besides that, they have very little mm. sources of um, external revenue, and as a result it's very important for uh, Niger to be able to um, rely on external funders to help it to carry out its um, you know budgetary needs, for example, the World Bank provides upwards of one point five billion dollars in annual aid to Niger government, and overall it obtains about forty percent of its budget from foreign aid, so it is a highly dependent country on external support. And the fact that they've been placed on sanctions already makes a bad situation worse.
4: After the coup in July, was there any expectation that there could be a repayment of these bonds? Because essentially, was the country ever in a position to repay that money?
2: It was at a position of disadvantage. And ECOWAN, remember, they had initially wanted to carry out a um, a military intervention to reinstate... That is
4: the ECOWAS, that's the consortium of the West African countries.
2: Yes, the regional bloc. And they have wanted to um, pursue a military... They wanted to put together... Um, a military force to forcibly remove the uh, military junta and reinstate the former president Mohamed Bazoum. And in that sense, they had hoped that maybe by October, November, everything will be resolved. But then the Niger uh, junta has been very resilient and they've been able to derive support from regional counterparts such as Mali and Burkina Faso, which are also military regimes. So ECOWAS, that is the regional consortium, they miscalculated, you know, how this political trajectory would go about. And as a result, it's been since November that Niger has been defaulting. And, you know, this could have a widespread effect because a lot of the institutions which are borrowing money to Niger, they are institutions based in Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, and this could have a ripple effect on their ability to, you know, loan money to other countries. You know, this situation not only creates a very um, negative situation, for Niger economy, but also for the regional financial players as well.
4: That was Leonard Balanzari, a political economist based in Cape Town, South Africa, talking to us on World Business Report. Moving now, if you're in Germany, France, or any other country of the European Union, you would have noticed from this week, when you use your phone or laptop to access your social media, there are fewer pop-up ads You have the option now to turn off automated recommended videos or people's profile suggestions. You can report fake products and have a legal right to question any kind of content moderation by online companies. Now, that's thanks to the Digital Services Act that the European Union has implemented from February 17. So it's in effect this week as well. And what can users expect to change more? What are challenges for all the EU members when they're implementing it? I caught up with Kirsten Rolf, who is the Associate Director at Boston Consulting Group. She negotiated key clauses in this act
7: in her previous job as the Head of Digital Policy at Federal Chancellery of Germany. The changes user experience on those social media platforms, you may have seen pop up um, this, this thing when you log on into Instagram or Facebook or even Google to, to do a search um, that now, you know, certain things will no longer be shown to you because they're considered harmful content. Um, and you can you also have the right to complain about content, to complain about harmful stories, um, about false disinformation that is spread online.
4: Well, already we've seen TikTok, for example, which is owned by ByteDance, is now under scrutiny under this act in the European Union about the way children have been experiencing this platform. The allegation is that they are being bombarded with misinformation. Do you see such legal scrutiny intensifying for social media platforms?
7: Absolutely, absolutely. I see that intensifying quite a lot. TikTok is the first case where they actually formally open an investigation, but X, formerly known as Twitter, is right behind that, for sure. Uh, Thierry Breton, the European commissioner, has said multiple times that they want to take on the X platform. But I see that the The big platforms can take it, but the reality is that the more than 10,000 platforms and online intermediaries that we see in the European Union, most of them are pretty small Uh, and it will be very, very difficult to implement the act with them. For the
4: social media companies then, because their marketing model is based on collection of user data and then the algorithms that they create for targeted advertising. This means that they have to significantly shift from that market model. And what kind of pushback are you seeing from some of these big social media
7: companies? So the trouble will be to see where is the fine line here between justified business model, because I don't know about you, but I actually also quite like to see um, ads of products that I might want to purchase. Ads are not necessarily a bad thing, but the way they are defined in the Digital Services Act is is if they manipulate you in any way and you don't know as a user, you just don't know that you're being manipulated, then that is an illegal So it will be very difficult to get to the bottom of this.
4: Some of the biggest markets of uh, social media companies are the U.S., India. Do you see them adapting the same?
7: I see India moving towards this. But um, we discussed, you know, the problem of where do you draw the line between censorship and a government actually being too forceful of what it doesn't want to be talked about in a society. That will be definitely a problem, I think, with India, with the U.S., I think what we'll be seeing is that the social media companies will drill down more in the U.S. and actually launch a lot more products that we won't see in Europe. So I think what we will see is a very different Internet when we travel to the U.S. than when we are in Europe. Um, But I definitely think that this is a law that will find um, followers across the world.
4: That was Kirsten Rulf, Associate Director at Boston Consulting Group. Emma Wall is still with us. So let's go back to markets with the news that is coming in, Emma, that there's yet another company leaving the UK Stock Exchange and on a day where there's been a big rally.
0: Yeah, so we started the programme by talking about NVIDIA, not to be confused with Indivia, which is a pharmaceutical firm that makes opioid addiction treatment. And they've announced today that they are considering a primary listing in the US and this comes... Just a week after travel company TUI said it would do the same. And of course, a year after very high profile listing ARM, which the current Conservative government in the UK had tried to court in order to IPO mm. in the UK, choosing to list in the US. And it's all down to momentum trade, you know, better executive pay, better attraction of talent, and ultimately just tr- the ability to attract more investment in the US. So
4: I think, unfortunately, this is a trend which isn't going to end anytime soon. Oh. Emma Wall, thank you so much for joining us. Head of Investment Analysis and Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne with that. Also, before we let you go, some more news coming in. This is authorities in Nigeria have blocked access to some of the world's largest crypto exchanges as the government is trying to crack down on currency speculation there. More on that, you can head to bbc.com. That's it for this edition of the World Business Report podcast with me, Devina Gupta. You can always tell us what you want to hear more on the show. You can email us at world.business at bbc.co.uk. See you next time. Namaste.